Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the IMV Inc. announces first quarter 2020 financial results and provides corporate and clinical updates conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would like to now hand the conference over to your speaker today, Pierre Labbé, Chief Financial Officer. Thank you. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Joanne. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Pierre Labbé. I'm CFO at IMV. I'm pleased to welcome you to our clinical and operational update and first quarter financial results conference call. I'm joined today by Fred Ors, our CEO, by Joanne Chandler, IMV's Chief Medical Officer, and also by uh, Marianne Stanford, our VP R&D. Fred will begin with an overview of the company's operational highlights. Then Joanne will provide the clinical update on our ongoing oncology program, and she will be followed by Marianne, who will provide an update with respect to the development of our DPX COVID-19 vaccine candidate. And finally, I will present the financial highlights of the quarter. But before we begin, I would like to remind you that except for historical information, this audio presentation contains forward-looking statements which reflects IMV's current expectations about future events. These forward-looking statements involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause IMV's actual results to differ materially from those statements. These risks and uncertainties include, but are not limited to our ability to access capital, the successful and timely completion of clinical trials, the receipt of all regulatory approval and other risks detailed from time to time in our ongoing quarterly filing and our annual information form. The forward-looking statements made on this call are based on several assumptions which may prove incorrect and they represent views only as of the date of this call and are presented for the purpose of assisting potential investors in understanding IMV's business and may not be appropriate for other purposes. IMV does not undertake to update forward-looking statements, whether written or oral, that may be made from time to time by or on its behalf, except as required under applicable securities legislation. Investors are cautioned not to rely on these forward-looking statements and are encouraged to read IMV's continuous disclosure documents, including in its current annual information form, as well as its audited annual consolidated financial statements, which are available on CEDAR and on EGER. The press release, the MDNA, and the financial statement are all posted on our website. If you wish to receive a copy of either of these documents, please do not hesitate to contact us. Finally, take note that we will take questions only from sell-side analysts at the end. I will now turn the call over to Fred. Fred? 
Thank you, Pierre, and good morning, everyone. I hope you and your loved ones are healthy and safe, and I would like to start with a few comments about the COVID-19 situation and its impact on our work. In response to the pandemic, we have been continuously monitoring the situation and adapting our business operations with one thing in mind, prioritizing the health and well-being of our employees, patients, clinical investigators, and personnel, and this in close collaboration with health authorities. We have successfully transitioned to a remote working arrangement to protect our employees and the broader community while maintaining our business continuity. The effects of the pandemic are slowing the pace of clinical development across our industry due to the absolutely uh, necessary diversion of healthcare resources to COVID-19. But I envy we remain more committed than ever to our long-term goal of, um, of developing a T-cell therapy with a focus on patient safety and data integrity. We are proud to continue uh, to deliver this new class of T-cell therapy with the potential to offer a better value proposition for patients with high unmet medical needs. Our clinical development strategy is centered on a simple goal, that is to demonstrate the potential of this T-cell therapy to significantly improve the duration of a quality of life. That is why we, we are very happy this morning to, to report a, a significant step toward achieving this goal with patients with recurrent refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Joan will uh, give you some more details later in the presentation. As a company, we're also fortunate to be developing a platform with multiple applications in cancer and vaccines against infectious diseases. And we feel really privileged and humble at the same time with the opportunity to contribute our technology and our past clinical successes into the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. We have been making great and rapid progress with our vaccine candidate for COVID-19. We are on, on, on schedule to complete preclinical studies very soon and are getting ready to initiate a phase one clinical study early in the summer. Uh, we are also very happy about our recently completed financing, extending our cash run rate to the end of 2021. It was not only a great vote of confidence from our existing shareholders, FSTQ, RAFR, and CTI Life Science, but also an opportunity to bring in new friends supporting our vision and science. I'm a strong believer in the old saying that you never have enough friends, so to Lumia and Altium, I want to say welcome and thank you for your support. I will now turn the conference over to Joanne, who will provide a clinical update on our oncology program. Joanne? Thank you, Fred, and welcome to everyone. I'll first start with a review and update of our phase two spiral study in recurrent refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which as a reminder is an investigator-initiated study led by Dr. Neil Berenstein, hematologist-oncologist at the Odette Cancer Center at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. The clinical trial design provides for an enrollment target of up to 25 evaluable patients who have received more than one prior treatment regimen. The primary endpoint of the study is to document a minimal objective response rate of 24% to treatment with CPX Survivac and intermittent low-dose cyclophosphamide administered with pembrolizumab in patients with recurrent surviving expressing DLBCL. As of May 7th, enrollment is ongoing with a total of 20 patients accrued at five different clinical sites in Canada. The next slide provides an update to the poster presented at the American Society of Hematology annual meeting last December. At that time, we had observed a 56% response rate based on five clinical responses 
than the first nine evaluable patients. Since December, we now have 11 evaluable patients and two additional reports of clinical response. This is a total of seven clinical responses with an objective response rate of 64%. So we're very happy to report that the study has met its primary endpoint of achieving a minimum of six responses in the planned 25 evaluable patients. As Fed previously mentioned, we believe these results continue to provide sufficient support for accelerating the development of DPX to Ryback in DLBTL. To illustrate this point, we've documented on slide five a few of the other clinical trials evaluating pembrolizumab as a combination in this population. As you can see on this slide, objective response rates in combination with pembrolizumab have been on around 20 to 25%, although AUTO-3, an investigational CAR-T therapy in combination with pembrolizumab shows a similar ORR with responses in seven of 11 patients. This being said, generally speaking, as we've mentioned in the past, we consider our approach is not directly comparable to CAR-Ts given, amongst other factors, the bridging chemotherapy often required before lymphodepletion, the serious potential adverse reactions, the required hospitalization, higher costs, and longer manufacturing time. Moving on to slide six, I'll now provide a quick update on our other ongoing studies in oncology, starting with the phase two decide study in advanced recurrent ovarian cancer. This study evaluates the safety and effectiveness of DPX Survivac with intermittent low-dose cyclophosphamide. In late February, IMV provided interim data from this study reported on disease control, duration of response, and tolerability. In 19 evaluable patients, we reported a 79% disease control rate with seven of nine patients, or 37%, achieving clinical benefit with partial response or stable disease lasting longer than six months. The treatment was well tolerated with the majority of adverse events being grade 1-2 injection site reactions. At the time of the data cutoff, six or 31% of those patients remained on therapy, and five of these patients were still on treatment at greater than six months. Since then, an abstract has been selected for a poster presentation at the upcoming ASCO conference. The abstract was posted online on Wednesday evening on the ASCO 20 virtual website. The poster presentation will be made by Dr. Oliver Dorigo, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology Oncology at the Stanford University Medical Center. It will provide translational data and an update on clinical responses for those patients that were still on trial in February. The translational data will include survivor-specific T-cell analysis in blood and tumors. This data will be made available with the virtual ASCO meeting taking place May 29th through 31st. Now I'd like to discuss the ongoing phase two basket trial in advanced metastatic solid tumors. The basket trial is an open-label multi-center phase two study evaluating the safety and efficacy of DPX survive access intermittent low-dose cyclophosphamide in combination with pembrolizumab across five cohorts of patients with bladder, liver, ovarian, and non-small cell lung cancer, as well as tumors shown to be positive for the microsatellite instability high biomarker. As of May 7th, a total of 92 out of the planned 184 patients were enrolled across all five indications at 19 clinical sites in Canada and the U.S. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen an impact on data collection and validation processes. However, based on our current assessment of the situation, we anticipate reporting updated results from this study in the second half of 2020. I thank you for your attention. I'll now turn the conference over to Marianne Stanford, our VP Research and Development, who will provide an update with respect to the development of a vaccine candidate against COVID-19. Marianne? Thank you, Joanne. 
Good morning, everyone. I'd like to give a brief update on IMD's program to advance the COVID-19 vaccine based on the DTX platform. I will start on slide number seven. In March, we announced our intentions to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, leveraging our previous work on a DTX-based vaccine for RSV. In the time since then, our research team has identified and tested our selected peptide epitope candidates, and we are currently on track to complete these studies this month. We have had preliminary discussions on our plans with Health Canada, and based on their feedback, we are finalizing the phase one study design. We have also submitted grants to all relevant authorities to assist in the funding of this program. On the next slide, on slide eight, we overview our approach. We are using B-cell peptide epitopes targeting the spike protein, which the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus uses to enter cells. The spike has two main functional areas, known as S1 and S2. The S1 portion contains the receptor binding domain and is involved in attachment to the host cell, while S2 primarily mediates fusion and entry into cells. Our epitopes have been designed to target several of these key areas in a non-overlapping fashion. Antibodies to these targets should efficiently inhibit virus entry into cells, and by targeting several areas at once, we lessen the potential for immune escape, even in the case of a mutation. On the next slide, on slide nine, we illustrate our progress to date. We have completed our preliminary selection of epitopes and the animal studies that facilitate the prioritization of peptides is ongoing. The final targets will be selected based on both their ability to generate strong immune responses, as well as neutralize the virus when formulated in DPS. This candidate will then be formulated at a GMP quality for entry into a phase one clinical study this summer. This concludes my presentation, and I will now turn the conference over to Pierre Labay, CFO of IMV, to discuss the quarter's financial highlights. Thank you, Maria. Uh, I will start by reminding you that all the numbers I will be discussing are in Canadian dollars. On May 7th, we completed a non-brokered private placement of $25.1 million. So if we add it to our cash balance of 7.4 at the end of the first quarter, on a pro forma basis, it represents $32.5 million of cash. And we also have access to $2.5 million of receivables coming from investment tax credit and trades receivable for a total of approximately $35 million of existing and potential sources of cash on a pro forma basis as at March 31st, 2020. And this amount does not include the 1.8 million coming from the use of the ATM since April 1st, 2020. The ATM or at the market offering was put in place during the first quarter of 2020. We decided to implement it because an ATM program creates further optionality in satisfying capital raising goals. We can decide to use it our, at our convenience and it gives us more flexibility and the money is always raised at market price. ETNs have become an increasingly popular vehicle in the capital markets in recent years and in 2019 only, 185 healthcare ATNs were filed. So with the completion of our 25.1 million private placement uh, last week, we extended our cash runway well into 2021 and are well-funded with many milestones in front of us. 
For the first quarter of 2020, we incurred a net and comprehensive loss of 9.7 million or 19 uh, cents per share for the quarter. It was 3.7 million higher than the net loss of the comparative period in 2019. This is mainly explained by the R&D expenses increase of 2.8 million for the quarter compared to 2019. These increases are mainly due to a spike in enrollment prior to the onset of the pandemic related to the ongoing basket trial and also the opening of new sites and non-recurring purchases of 1.3 million of GMP-grade raw materials and contract manufacturing for DPX or buyback. With this purchase, IMB as GMP-grade materials cover all the needs of the corporation for ongoing DPX survivor trials until mid-2021. The increase in R&D expenses is also related, uh, related to a lesser extent to preclinical development of DPX surmage for bladder cancer and personal cost due to an increase in income in 2019. GN expenses increased by 1.1 million for the quarter, and this increase in, is mainly due to non-cash DSU compensation caused by share price fluctuation, foreign exchange loss, and investor relation activities, including travel costs incurred prior to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. For the quarter, our uh, cash burn rate uh, that we define as the net loss for the period adjusted for operations not involving cash was 8.6 million. We expect that the cash burn for the remaining of 2020 to return to uh, between 5 to 6 million per quarter due to the non-recurring ex expenditure in Q1 and also of, uh, because of the impact of COVID-19. Finally, as of May 14, 2020, the number of issued and outstanding common shares was 60.4 million, and a total of 5.1 million stock options, DSUs, and warrants were outstanding. Uh, please take note that our uh, unaudited interim consolidated financial statements for the three months ended March 31st, 2020, and the related MDNA are available on CDAR and on EDGAR. So thank you for your attention, and I will now turn the call back over to Fred for his closing comments before the Q&A session. Fred. Thanks, Pierre. In, in these challenging times, we are looking ahead to the reminder of 2020 with optimism. Um, at the upcoming ASCO virtual scientific program, which will be held at the end of May, we expect to report updated clinical response data from the DECIDE-1 trial of TPX survival in advance and recurrent ovarian cancer patients. Additionally, we look forward to reporting top-line phase two results from DPX survival basket trial and spiral study in relapse refractory DLBCL before the end of the year. We believe our excellent results in relapse refractory DLBCL taken together with emerging promising data from a DECIDE-1 study in ovarian cancer support our plan to accelerate development in, in these indications. More so, beyond our lead program, we are preparing to advance our clinical candidate for COVID-19 as quickly as possible and continue to leverage the, the multiple opportunities of our platform against other targets of interest. We thrive continuing making progress in unlocking the value of our platform for patients afflicted with cancer and other serious diseases. 
including COVID-19, and are so grateful for the continued support of our partners, shareholders, and employees as we continue as a team to deliver on IMV's great opportunities. Thank you for your attention. Operator, we are now ready to take questions. As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound or hash key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes in the line of Tom Schrader from BTIG. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning. Uh, congratulations on the progress. Um, so I, I guess the first question I, I have is, since the last data, the stock has struggled really because of the cyclophosphamide confusion, really the role of that drug. And I understand your arguments. I'm just wondering if you've had discussions with regulators. Is it an issue for them, or, or is it, or are your arguments widely accepted, or have you not had discussions yet? Any update would be great. Hi, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, no, honestly, it's never been an issue um, for us. Uh, it never came as as a discussion point. Uh, there is no. Um, you know, strong clinical evidence of the activity of cyclophosphamide as the way we are using it in, in either the LBCL or ovarian cancer. So for the regulators, you know, there is not, you know, a strong, um, you know, base or, or, or foundation to to question, you know, the, um, um, the development. They, they, you know, the last time we had meeting with the DA, they, they didn't ask, you know, us to to uh you know to, 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 to prove anything related to cyclophosphamide. So so it I think it's more of a market um perception, but nonetheless this is something you know we we are taking you know very seriously and that you know we want to uh to um you know to, to address and um in that vein we are planning to um um you know um provide some updates um when we release the updated clinical data um on the DSI trial at ASCO. Oh, great, thank you. And then, so to switch to the COVID vaccine approach, you, you have this elegant approach with specific peptides, uh, partially driven by the idea of avoiding this antibody-enhanced disease. When do you know if, in fact, that's a problem with the COVID vaccines, and whether you get around it? Is it not known until sort of deep phase three, or do you get earlier signs? Well, if, if I if I may correct one thing, Tom, about you know the, the targeted approach that we are pursuing, it's you know it's it's very much you know uh, aligned with with you know uh, the idea that we are developing in oncology of of really targeting um, the immune response on on a, a molecularly defined area that we believe is important for the disease. So uh, with you know in for example in cancer with you know with we have been adamant, you know, about the importance of surviving for cancer. It's not just a flag on cancer cell, but it's something that cancer needs to, to survive. That's what it calls surviving. And, and it's really the same concept we're applying to COVID-19. We, like Marianne was explaining, you know, we are targeting what we believe are the most important uh, functional units of, of the spike protein. And there's more than one, you know, there's the, the attachment to the receptor, but you, ha you also have fusion and entry. Uh, those are three different steps, key uh, steps in the mechanism of action for infection. 
And, and we believe that you know, the, the opportunity that we have with our platform and our technology to target the immune response on those weak spots for the virus has the potential, um, first, I would say, to increase um, the efficacy. So you know, the driver for what we do is, is we want to make the best vaccine possible for COVID-19, focusing on, on why it matters on the virus. The, the potential benefit of that, to answer your question, is also because we are uh, targeted, you know, when, when we discuss with the regulatory authorities about, you know, the issue of, for example, of non-neutralizing antibodies, you know, it, it, you know it's already eliminated from, from the vaccine design from the get-go because everything we do is based on full characterization of the epitopes that the vaccine is targeting. And, and we really remove, you know, the, the, uh, the unknown by doing that, because when you uh, uh, use the full virus or use the full spike protein, you know, you have uh, uh, hundreds of, of antibodies, you know, generated. Some are, some are neutralizing, some are not neutralizing. We just don't have that in our vaccine. So it, 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 it makes an easier discussion with the regulatory authorities. Uh, the immune-enhanced you know, there's, there's so many unknown about it. I don't know, Marianne, if you want to talk about it, but <laughs> we feel it's a, uh, you know, there's so many things that are unknown at this stage uh, that's difficult to, to figure out, you know, how this will unfold, you know, with the different vaccine technology. I don't know, Marianne, if you want to give uh, your perspective on it. Yeah, I think that it's a really very much an evolving field, and, and the, not only is the science evolving, the models in which we can use other than the clinical studies to assess this are evolving. So I think, I think we'll learn a lot um, about the potential for this from the animal models as they evolve, and I don't think we'll have to wait till we're in clinical studies. All right, great. Thank you for detailed answers. Thanks, Tom. Your, your next question comes to the line of Joe Pen Pentginis from HC Wainwright. Your, li your line is now open. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question, and I'm glad you're all well. Um, congratulations on the spiral data. I wanted to start with that one, if you don't mind, a couple questions. Um, so with this data in mind and this being an IST, and I know my question might be going into the competitive arena here, but I was just curious if you could take some broad strokes as to the potential path forward for IMV as you talk about a potential accelerated path forward. Joanne, you want to get this one, take this one? Sure. Um, yeah, so we are very excited about this data. You know, we thought it was tracking this way, and so now we're really glad to be able to report that we have seen that sixth patient and actually a seventh out of 11 available. So we do believe this is very promising. We are now um, moving along our discussions about what that next step will be in terms of a sponsor-initiated trial. So we are in the process of doing that. We do understand, you know, there is the pandemic, and so we're trying to um, manage that to make sure we can move this quickly forward. But exact timing will depend upon how all of this plays out in the next several months. I understand. Thank you. And then um, with regard to the basket study, uh, you obviously, um, you know, due to the pandemic, moved some uh, data timing to the second half. So I'm just curious, um, you do have a lot of patients enrolled in the study already. So is it more of a function of ensuring that you have a, I guess, a, um, a certain amount of patients enrolled in each tumor type to be able to disclose a full, uh, fuller data set? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, you're drunk. Go ahead. <laughs> no, um, thanks, Fred. Um, thanks for the question. Uh, yes, that is true. Um, we had, you know, before the pandemic, we, we basically had a bolus of patients come in, and they have been followed, and we're still accruing additional patients. But it was also a matter of bringing in the data set and making sure we had enough of the data to be able to report on, you know, a significant number of those patients. So there were the, those pieces that needed to come together. And so we're, we're still doing that. It just takes a little bit of time working through all of this remote monitoring and, and things like that to come together to make sure that we had the appropriate data set in, um, you know, with the appropriate number of patients as well. Got it. Thank you. And my last question, I guess, um, you know, thank you for the additional detail for the COVID-19 vaccine approach. And, um, you know, when we have the timing for the start of the clinical study, I was just curious around your communication strategy around the preclinical data that you might generate. Well, we'd like to, uh, <clears throat> so we, we believe that the work we are, we are doing is, uh, is unique in the, uh, global scientific efforts to <clears throat> to develop a vaccine because again you know going back to my uh, answer uh, earlier you know we are really uh, developing a targeted approach that's focused on on neutralizing antibodies and and basically um, <clears throat> mapping out you know where are the best interesting uh, weaknesses immunological weaknesses of the virus and so so you know we we'd like to to be able to to you know to publish that we we believe that will be a, a you know that's great information for us to select the vaccine for sure but that's also great information to the scientific community so we'd like to 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 look at the possibility of of doing a publication on this you know obviously we'll try to to make it you know very quick um um but but you know like uh, Marion said you know we'll we'll have completed you know uh, the important piece of, of uh, the preclinical studies before the end of May on schedule, and and then we'll be able to move in uh, in in the clinical um, uh, study, and you know in between that you know we should be able to uh, to put out the publication on on uh, the detailed results. Great, thanks everyone. Stay well. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of ten, Ted Tentoff from Piper Sandler. Your line is now open. Great, thank you very much. And uh, Mike, congrats on the spiral update. You know, it's funny to me that psychoplasma is a question considering um, it's used with the CAR-Ts as well. So I don't really get that pushback, and I think that's a clear signal of response. I'm looking for additional updates on that. Um, with respect to the basket trial, um, I'm trying to understand sort of how you would proceed um, from those uh, different cohorts from those different readouts. So, you know, if you have activity in two or three, what are the plans for expansion and how quickly could that occur? Thanks so much, guys, and keep up the great work. Thanks, Ted. Um, yeah, to, to your comment on CPO4-somide, I would just, you know, um, add that in, in the CAR-T context, uh, it's used at very high dose much higher dose than what we are using, and it's also used all the time in, combi in combination with fludaribine. So they, not only they're using uh, cyclophosphamide idols, but they're using fludaribine, which is also a very active drug. Uh, so, 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 but thanks for really uh, uh, reinforcing uh, uh, the, 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 
the difference that, that we have. And, and you know, we we are you know definitely you know convinced, and investigators you know working on this trial are definitely convinced that you know we we are showing a very strong sign of activity here. Um, um, on on the basket trial, um, you know, we um, I think it was at uh, I don't remember, sorry, but we we published a poster on the design of the basket basket trial where we described the design of the trial, and in this poster you find. Um, um, you know information on the two-stage two design that that you know we Merck and, and IMV developed together uh, to make decision on 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 you know where, where are the best opportunity for for the combination out of those five indications and it's really based on um, you know um, Simon two-stage design where you you define uh, uh, you know um, a minimal response rate. Um, and you want to eliminate, you know, the, the the hypothesis that your response rate is going to be below that, and if it's over that, then uh, you have your 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 decision point to uh, move into stage two and eventually, you know, move into a, a, a bigger uh, phase two, uh, even potentially registrational, you know, trial. So that's really how it's the basket trial is 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 designed. Great, thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks, David. Your next question comes from the line of David Novak from Raymond James. Your line is now open. Good morning, and thanks for taking my questions. Um, so starting off with a spiral study here, uh, the DLBCL results continue to look quite good. Um, I just wanted to first confirm that the two additional clinical responses being reported here are indeed responses per modified Chesham criteria? Yes, they are, David. Excellent. Great. And I also just wanted to clarify if the trial is still aiming to uh, uh, hit target enrollment of 25 patients, and if so, could you talk a little bit about enrollment rate? Looks like about one patient every two months. Uh, is that what we should be expecting here, or is enrollment being closed early based on the results that you've generated to date? Well, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer uh, for, for two reasons. First of all, it's an investigator-sponsored trial, so it's not you know there are there are some limitation in terms of of the number of sites and and that you know um, um, you know it's not under the control of IMV. Um, and the second you know element is is COVID-19. You know it's you know um, we we all hope obviously that the situation is going to improve over time. Uh, with the confinement happening, but you know we've we've learned you know in the last few months that you know it's very difficult for 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 us and I guess for any biotech company to provide guidance on on you know what might be happening uh, at the hospitals um, and and you know with the suppliers uh, that are involved in in collecting the data and all of that. So we just want to be careful in in you know creating expectation where we we have very limited visibility on what, you know, what could be the situation in three months from now. I'm sorry I cannot give you more, but that's really a, a challenging time for, for making prediction for sure. Fair enough, but, but it does sound like the, um, the assumption right now is to continue to enroll uh, oh, yeah. regardless yeah. of, yeah, okay, okay, great. Uh, and then finally, just lastly on the DECIDE trial, um, so in the ASCO abstract, you know, we're still looking at an ORR here of about 15.8% now. Obviously, that's as of February, so things can change. However, assuming monotherapy anti-tumor activity does indeed shake out around that sub-20% level, 
Is the company adamant at driving forward here as a monotherapy, maybe looking to tackle a survival endpoint rather than a response-based endpoint going forward? Or is the company currently evaluating go-forward combination opportunities? Well, I think, you know, we, we want to really uh, um, get the opportunity to look at the final results. You know, one of the hallmark of immunotherapy is the long, is the long tail of, of, you know, benefits and responses. And, you know, since we started the development of DPX or Vivac, you know, this is something, you know, we, we have been seeing across uh, all our um, 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 indications so far. Um, and, and, you know, this is part of the challenge of immunotherapy as well as, you know, the checkpoint inhibitors, you know, they are not, you know, successful because of high response rate. They are success successful because of, of uh, uh, really uh, long durations of, of, of benefits. So, so um, you know, we, we, we want to uh, get the opportunity to, to get to the final results and, and, you know, really be able to assess, you know, um, what are the, the, the the benefits of this drug and how this drug fits in the current, you know, um, uh, standard of care for vein cancer, and think about, you know, where are what, what is the most, you know, um, 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 you know, interesting, you know, path to market for for this drug um, in ovarian cancer. But we should, you know, we should reach that point before the end of the year and and really be able to to provide, you know, uh, more information on on the way we're going to be choosing to, uh, to move ahead. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Fred, and I'll hop back in the queue. Thanks, David. Your next question comes from the line of Andre Leno from National Bank. Your line is now open. Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Just a, a couple uh, for me, uh, uh, really. Uh, you're saying that all your clinical trials, uh, at least on the, on the basket trials, they're still open. Are they recruiting any patients? Uh, still, it's my first question, and how do you see, or, or if you have any comment on patient recruitment uh, for the rest of the year? Sure, Joanne, can you can you give more information on, on how it's, it's working and uh, what's the situation? Yeah, um, so we're monitoring that on a regular basis. We are still having um, patients recruited. They're being screened and enrolled. Um, it varies by site, but it is definitely still occurring. And we expect that to, you know, sort of change over time depending upon where um, the pandemic may be worse at times and getting better. So as things begin to open, we would also expect things to pick up at different centers at different times. But accrual is ongoing. Okay, great. Thank you. Have you seen any patient drops uh, to date? Or because of the pandemic, that is. In terms of numbers. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. Overall numbers, I, I would say that there has been a little bit of a slowing at particular centers, but um, overall, it's it, there. There's a little bit of a slow, but it's not like it's come to a trickle or anything like that. We're still seeing um, activity at many of our centers. That has not changed. Okay, uh, great, thank you. And uh, still on the patient side, but uh, on on uh, on uh, recruitment, but looking at more on the COVID trial. I mean, given that there is a bit of a rush uh, with different companies developing treatments and vaccines, like how do you see uh, how, how do you see a recruitment uh, there for for subjects come summer? Sure. Is this in? Question in regards to the COVID-19 program itself? 
Yeah, yeah, the, the COVID yeah, vaccine that we're developing. So in healthy volunteers, that's where we will be going um, as, as other companies have gone. Um, we anticipate that accrual will go quite smoothly. And Andre, if you could you, you could look at some recent examples of of uh, uh, phase one studies where you know uh, uh, there's a lot of volunteers uh, coming in at the, coming in at the sites. So you know a lot of people are interested in uh, being vaccinated for COVID-19. So we don't anticipate it's going to be a challenge. You know what's going to be a challenge for um, you know every vaccine players um, uh, in the world is really you know the more the efficacy, you know, phase three uh, development that, uh, you know, hopefully will, will happen quickly after phase one, two. Um, uh, but, you know, there, there, are, there is some, um, um, you know, uh, collaborations are hopefully, you know, happening um, um, with the WHO and, and some other uh, players to, to provide a, uh, a framework and an environment where those phase three trials will be able to uh, to run, you know, um, not necessarily in, a, in the country where the vaccine is being developed, but anywhere in the world. Okay, uh, great, thank you. Again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your telephone. Your next question comes from the line of Jim Birchenhoff from Wells Fargo. Your line is now open. Uh, good morning. It's uh, Nick on for Jim this morning. Um, just going back to uh, ovarian cancer, Fred, um, I, I thought at the beginning of the year you'd already decided that you would approach FDA um, for like an end of phase two meeting to to discuss a potential single arm phase two B registration trial. Is uh, Do I understand now that you've decided to wait for the data to mature? And until you decide whether or not to go uh, um, meet with FDA? Yeah, in, in any case, uh, um, you know, we, um, you know, the, the pattern of responses that we, we are seeing, you know, those those uh, um, very long duration ASDs that we, we've, we've highlighted in February, um, um, you know, it's, it, it's something that we have to consider in, in when we go back to, to the FDA. Um, and, and plus, you know, the COVID-19 situation also uh, influencing, you know, the, the speed at which we can we can move move things. So altogether, um, we believe it's a it's a better strategy to um, to you know, like I was saying, to to really get a full understanding of uh, the final results and and figure out, you know, what's the best path forward for for the development in ovarian cancer before before we go in front of the. the yeah, that, that makes sense. Are you, are you concerned that some of these patients that are potentially benefiting from the vaccine but then moving on to other therapies, that that sort of muddies your ability to dissociate what the impact of the vaccine is versus, you know, uh, subsequent therapy? Well, it, it's more the fact that, you know, you know, like, like we said, you know, we, we – um, we have a long tail of, of, of you know, clinical benefits that, you know, um, maybe they will all translate into uh, that definition of, of response rate, that 30%, and, and whether it's, it's uh, absolutely um, um, required or, or, or clinically relevant um, um, will have to be discussed. But, but, you know, 
you've seen the pat you've seen the pattern of responses. We we are seeing a number of patients that you know are stable over a significant period of time, and and you know um, um, it's those you know discussion with investigators, people uh, you were at the uh, KOL meeting. You know the feedback we are getting is that those those patients those patients are experiencing um, clear clinical benefits with meaningful quality of life. Um, and that we should consider that in our plan. So that's you know what we yeah. want to do. Okay. And then just moving on to diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Um, so 20 patients have been enrolled. Uh, you know, at this stage, nine nine are ineligible for analysis per the investigator. I know we've discussed about this before that Dr. Berenstein sort of defined his own set of criteria for that. So uh, have some of these patients been recently enrolled such that, you know, they're, they're not eligible because they've not reached that particular time point, or, or is this it now? We have 11 patients, and now what we're looking at is sort of, again, the durability of those responses. Uh, John, I, I think we, we had new patients coming in that, that you know, have been available, and um, we... Um, I think we said we yeah we had 20. So um, um, and again you know just to repeat what was discussed you know when we did the update in December, uh, bridging chemotherapy is not allowed in this trial. So um, um, you know that poses a challenge for for the treatment uh, in the you know the time between their enroll and the time they can start the trial. You know it's um, there's that that's you know um, long enough to. For some of those patients to be in a, in, in a very uh, um, uh, dramatic, you know, progression on a very in a very dramatic, you know, progression path that you know make them, you know, come in the trial and go out immediately. Uh, and this is something, you know, we will we'll be, you know, uh, looking at, you know, in the next trial we're going to do in the LBCL for sure. And and that was my follow-up question there, Fred. Is uh, you know, again, you've talked about for the next trial, trying to avoid these fast progressive patients. Um, what are your latest thoughts in terms of what a next trial would look like and when could that start? I'll, I'll let Joanne answer that one. So that, that is exactly what we're looking at to consider this. We think that this is a population of patients where we do see activity. So I think we would be in the same place. We also believe those, um, even with the newer therapies that may be coming in, we're always going to have patients who relapse. So we'll be looking at that population of patients and um, looking at the design with our KOLs um, to take that next step. And is that something that could happen this, this year, or do you think that'll be into 21? I think we will do our best to move it as rapidly forward as we can in the environment of the pandemic. Okay. It's, it's just then, really hard right now to, to, you know, understand how quickly things may be able to move right now. Thank you. And then just moving to the vaccine, um, Fred, in, in terms of obviously vaccine supply, you've commented in the past that, uh, you know, it, your vaccine's amenable to a rapid scale-up, but just in terms of 
you know, current manufacturing plans and what you can support um, with current cash. And then, you know, if you can expand on your comments on the grants applications and, you know, how far you can go without getting some of those grants uh, applications granted and you know, sort of your level of confidence on, you know, where, how, what the outcome of those applications will be. Uh, thanks, thanks, Nick. Um, no, well, our um, plan is 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 you know we, we don't we don't you know plan or foresee to to develop you know a, a vaccine for COVID-19 in the absence of of um, you know grants. Grants is one thing, give you the money to do it, but I think to me what's more important is is the collaboration with um, the government because at the end of the day they're going to be the decision makers, they're going to be the buyers. And I believe that it doesn't make sense for a company to, uh, you know, be involved in, in 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 this pandemic, you know, without you know working in close collaboration with the government. So, so in a sense, you know, we won't, you know, proceed to uh, develop a vaccine uh, in the absence of of those those uh, grants and and the collaboration with the government. We feel very confident that you know. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be able to uh, to get those grants for um, the clinical uh, development of the product. And and governments obviously the Canadian government is your number one priority. But are you looking at, at getting support from other governments as well? Yeah, we we are focusing you know the early phase one uh, and and scale up manufacturing uh, in Canada. But but you know the. One of the big advantage of the technology that we have is that uh, you know the, the manufacturing process is actually fully synthetic and, and pretty simple, uh, meaning that it's portable any place in the world with capacity for lyophilized vaccines, and there's many of them across the world. You know, would be uh, um, um, uh, could potentially become um, a manufacturer in a in a pretty short period of time. Um, so, so you know, we are focusing in Canada. We have already, you know, partners in the U.S. in terms of manufacturing that you know could be mobilized uh, for uh, for U.S. you know uh, expansion out of Canada, um, you know, after the phase one or before the phase one. We'll see. And then beyond that, we've we've had had some preliminary discussions with other potential manufacturers that could expand into. Uh, um, a more global effort that you know the WHO and organization like uh, SAPI, for example, are trying to uh, to uh, to develop. Great, thanks. I'll, I'll jump back in the queue. Thanks, Nick. There are no further questions at this time. I will turn the call back over to the presenters. Well, I have nothing to add. Just want to thank you all for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.